All right, welcome back to 1 Corinthians. We're looking at uh, chapter 11, the last part of chapter 11 today, dealing with the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> we have our quiz, but it's been a month ago, so I hope you reviewed before the class today. So the head covering worn by women in Corinth resembled the modern veil. No. No. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of the veil like a bride would wear, you know, or a veil like a, you know. It was it was a head covering. It was stripped, as far as we know, from art and, uh, oh, and statues. Oh, modern hat, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was Sorry. a. It was either it was either a separate scarf, a cloth, or sometimes you pull your garment over your head, so you were pulling it over your head, like you do see some. Uh, Muslim women, you know, they'll have just a scarf over their head or something like that. But it's, it's not a veil. We think of a veil as covering your eyes, I think, you know, normally. Uh, a veil covering your eyes. So it's, it's not a covering of the eyes or the face. It's a covering of the head. So in that sense, that head covering does not resemble a modern veil in that sense. The Father is the head over Christ means he's superior to Christ in essence. No. Do I dare say false? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no. So uh, so we're talking about 11.3 there, you remember, where Paul says the principle of that chapter, the beginning of chapter 11 about submission, subordination, is that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man, man's head of the woman. So the question is, in what sense is God the Father, the head of Christ? Well, uh, Jesus says at some point, my father is greater than I. He actually says that in John. So there is a sense, uh, when we're talking about the Trinity, theologians have technical names for this kind of thing. They always have technical names. And uh, they talk about the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. I guess in Master Plan for Life, Master Kent, talk about the ontological means being or essence and economic means how you function. So, uh, there's a sense, we know that since uh, God is a triune God, all persons have all the same attributes, they're all equal in power, essence, glory, and so forth. But there's also a sense in which they function differently. The Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son. So the Father is the one who sends the Son. The Son, the Father, sends the Spirit, and so forth. They function as we do in certain, you know, we could say, if you, I could say the President is greater than I am. Or the, the, some might say in, in Britain, the Queen is greater than I am. Well, she's greater, yeah. She's greater in her position and her authority, but not necessarily in intelligence or essence or being or anything like that. So the same thing is true in the husband-wife situation. The husband is greater than the wife in that authority sense in, in the marriage relationship. But he may not be greater in other ways, really. He may not be smarter or superior in any other, you know. But he has functional authority, so that's the way it works in the church. Uh, right way it works in, way it works where you work. <laughs> you may work for a person. Your boss may not, uh, may not be the brightest person in the world, but they may be your boss. <laughs> so, so there you are, you know. Uh, that's the way it works. Uh, so is it proper to call modern preachers prophets? I don't think so. Uh, 
now people sometimes do say somebody's a prophet um, and uh, but technically as we'll see when we get we talked about prophecy because chapter 11 talks about women praying and prophesying so we talked about prophecy as divine communication given by God through a person a miraculous supernatural thing in that sense prophecy is a miraculous gift that's no longer in existence so in that sense there's no prophets we know that some people speak prophetically they have something to say that's important but technically preachers aren't prophets in that sense there is a profound interdependence and mutuality present in the male-female relationship through there as we saw in chapter 11 that one does not exist without the other some women uh, do not need to wear a head uh, since women do not need to wear a head covering today this passage has no application to women wives in our culture no that's not true we still observe the principle of submission in marriage and so forth without wearing the head covering we're ready to look now at uh, the latter part of chapter 11 this is the Lord's Supper does everybody get some notes there were some notes back there everybody got some okay we're ready to talk about the proper conduct at the Lord's Supper and I say here Paul now turns to take up a second abuse of Christian worship in the church at Corinth the divisions associated with celebrating the Lord's Supper so you can see from our uh, chapter here we're in the section beginning in chapter uh, 7 in chapter 7 Paul deals with problems that apparently he got an official letter, a letter about. And he says, remember in chapter 7, 1, now concerning the things you wrote about to me. And he's responding to what he has heard in this letter. And apparently this takes us through chapter 16. The first thing, remember, was marriage and related matters in chapter 7. Food sacrifice to idols was three chapters. That was a big section, chapters 8, 9, and 10. 11, 1, probably the chapter divides better at between 11, 1 and 11, 2. And now some things dealing with public worship. And uh, the one was the head covering in chapter 11, 2 through 16. And now another issue in public worship is the Lord's Supper. As I say here... Uh, <clears throat> The divisions associated with celebrating the Lord's Supper, he says there are divisions among you in verse 18, based along socioeconomic class lines, he says, humiliating those who have nothing. So in Corinth, there were social and economic classes. Hard to talk about classes in a country like America. We've grown up in a country that has not tended to have much class distinctions versus if you lived in the world for the last, since the creation of the world, there's always been class distinctions. There have been those who are the aristocratic class and then the lower classes. And for most of world history, you didn't cross those boundaries. If you were born in England in 1850 and 1800 or something and your father was a blacksmith, you weren't going to become a physician you weren't going to become a, a, a government minister. There's just no way you could rise to that position. Today, a person can be born of the humblest means in America, the humblest family, and become president of the United States. You know, well, that just that hasn't that doesn't happen even today in most countries. 
It doesn't happen today. And uh, it didn't happen for most of history. So there were classes. There were uh, class distinctions. Those who were the more aristocratic class, now they were wealthier too. It's true even in places like India today. India still has, and I think it's a little shameful among Christians in India. Don't tell anybody, don't tell any Indian people I said this, but I think there's still, uh, it's, it's a little sad from what I understand, you know, that there is still this, there's other class distinctions are hard to get rid of. They're hard to remove. And so, you know, if you're a Brahmin, if you're of the higher class, you're recognized as that. And, um, you know, Christianity doesn't have any place for those kind of class distinctions. And Christianity has no place for these socioeconomic, for these economic distinctions. James has a lot to say about poor people in the church and so forth. So we don't have any place for that, but they did in Corinth, of course. They, that was the way the society worked. And they brought those things into the church. Now, we do too. We do too. We bring our prejudices, our distinctions into the church and so forth. But they're not supposed to be present in the church, as we'll see here. So there's a problem here with certain people being abused, those who have nothing, the poorer classes. Although Paul makes reference to some people getting drunk, that in itself is not the real problem. But one result of the primary abuse... In order to understand the abuse, we must be aware of the fact that in the early church, the Lord's Supper was most likely eaten as or in conjunction with a meal. This is similar to when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. He was eating a Passover meal. And then in the middle of the meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper in the Gospels, remember. This is the way the early church seems to have celebrated it that way. The primary problem in the Corinthian church was an abuse of the church itself, specifically those members of the lower socioeconomic status in connection with the meal. This is specifically stated in the rhetorical questions in verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So Paul's complaint here is that some in the church are despising the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. I say, but not only is their conduct at the Lord's Supper an abuse of the church, the body of Christ, it's an abuse of Christ himself. The bread represents his crucified body, which along with the poured out blood affected the death that ratified the new covenant. By the Corinthians' abuse of one another, they were also abusing Christ through whose death and resurrection they had been brought into his body, the church. So we'll, so Paul is going to need to take the Corinthians all the way back to the actual words of the institution of the Lord's Supper by our Lord Jesus himself so he can restore the meal to its rightful place. He can restore the meaning of the food, the, the bread, the cup, to its rightful place in their particular meal. So I say here, most likely at Corinth, the church gathered for meetings in the homes of the rich. So in the early church, they didn't have church buildings, as we know. These church buildings didn't come along until sometime later, probably in the 200s, maybe. It's maybe the first church buildings. And we know there were church buildings, even though there were persecution. They, they, were, 
there were some church buildings, but not not this not early on. There was no buildings dedicated, you know, uh, to churches. So they met in homes. Um, uh, provided uh, homes of the rich. Probably the host was the one who provided the meal, eaten in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Note Romans 16.23, which was written from Corinth. Romans was written from Corinth a couple of years after 1 Corinthians. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. So this man named Gaius, apparently the church met in his home. Archaeology has shown rather conclusively that the dining room, the Latin triclinium, and such homes would probably accommodate a maximum of 12 guests. Now, I'm, I'm not saying absolutely on this, but that's what the archaeologists say, that the average home would be maybe about 12 guests in the dining room or so forth. Therefore, the majority would eat in the atrium, the somewhat larger entry courtyard, which would seat maybe 30 to 50 guests, maybe more. In a class-conscious society such as Roman Corinth would have been, it would have been natural for the host to invite those of his own class to eat in the triclinium while the others would eat in the atrium. The language, your private suppers, in verse 21, refers to the eating of private meals by the wealthy in which at the common meal of the Lord's Supper they ate either their own portions or perhaps privileged portions that were not made available to those in the church on a lower socioeconomic level. Now, we don't face this particular problem exactly because we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a meal. It's a memorial, as we'll see, celebrating that. But we do face uh, the issue here, we could face the issue here of how we treat others, other people in the church. So we see, first of all here, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, verses 17 through 22. Bill, could I say something? Yeah. I think, uh, I think we are amiss, too, in our church when we have a supper or something like that, and people uh, save seats where somebody comes in and says, may I sit here? And you say, no, I'm saving this for somebody else. Personally, I think that kind of goes along with that same situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can see where that... Because it, it makes people feel... And I, I yeah. have this all the time in my business. Yeah. You know, people say, could I sit here? And yeah. They say, no. It makes you feel like yeah, you're not you stay a penny yet. waiting for change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. It's a worthwhile, very good point. Verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So I say, unlike Paul's previous discussion in 11, 2 through 16, where he offered some words of praise, he said there, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the tradition just as I pass them on to you. When it comes to the issues of the Lord's Supper, Paul has no such praise, since their meetings do more harm than good. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Paul now explains how the Corinthians' gatherings are, unfortunately, for the worse rather than for the better. When the Corinthians come together as a church, there are divisions among them. These divisions are directly related to their coming together as a church. Now, as 
the rest of this section will make clear Paul has only two groups in mind here. What we might call the haves and the have-nots. Those who are more wealthy, those who have a, slow, uh, a lower socioeconomic background here. Um, now we gather from what Paul says in the rest of this section, he does actually believe it. He says, and to some extent I believe it. What we gather from what he what he actually says here, he says he actually does believe this. But I think he states it in a way to sort of shame the Corinthians, you know. It's terrible that there are these kind of divisions. And, you know, I guess I ha- we have to believe it. Uh, it's, it's so inappropriate. It would make a normal person question the truthfulness of it, seems to be what he's saying here. Verse 19, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have a God's approval. Now, the purpose of this verse is to explain the final clause of verse 18. And to some extent, I believe it. Apparently, Paul is now giving a theological reason as further justification for believing his informants. The reason is there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. The term differences is roughly synonymous with divisions. There have to be these differences or differences of divisions among you in that sense. The problem with this verse is understanding how Paul, who earlier in the letter argued so strongly against divisions, can now affirm a kind of divine necessity for divisions. Why should there be a divine necessity for divisions? Paul is apparently reflecting on the fact that there will always be true and false believers in the church. That is, though in general we do not want divisions in a church, we realize that in any church there may be members who are not truly saved, and their unregenerate state will probably reveal itself when they express their differences. Here the saved or the approved, or the unsaved or the disapproved. So this is a little bit of a strange verse here, coming between verse 18 and 19, but Paul seems to be saying here, uh, I can believe that there are differences there, because they're in a sense uh, there's always going to be some differences in a church because he says in any kind of church even our church our church is a church that believes in regenerate church membership now if you're from a some denominational church that doesn't believe in that you could have a lot of divisions that is if you believe in infant baptism say Lutheran Methodist or others then you're, there's no there's no guarantee that you're regenerate when you become an adult and you're still in the church. But here, a person has to profess that they believe Christ before they come into the church. But that doesn't guarantee. Paul is saying here in Corinth, it doesn't guarantee everybody is a Christian. And so he can understand that sometimes differences will arise, uh, not just differences of opinion here, but differences based upon the fact that some are approved this goes back to 927 or disqualified that is not saved. And and the and the New Testament talks about this that sometimes in churches we have divisions that arise because of unbelief. Remember John says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they really not belong to us. So he talks about people who left John's church or John's congregation 
and I'm not point in saying this, is they left because they really weren't of us. It became manifest. It's a very sad fact. But sometimes in a church, it becomes apparent a person, uh, a person, an individual leaves, and it's because they really weren't regenerate. You know, they, they, we, we thought they were, we hoped they were, but ultimately they couldn't submit. They just got upset with some teaching, the teaching of the Bible. They, I'm, I just can't accept that. I just can't go along with that. And it doesn't always mean they're unsafe because they leave because they're upset. People get upset over they didn't like the color of the carpet. They don't like the way the piano is played. Or people get upset about all kinds of things and leave churches. But still, it's possible, as John says here, and as Paul is saying, you, we, we shouldn't be totally surprised if people leave are you know are upset in the sense that we 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 don't want Christians to do that. We hope we can live together as brothers and sisters, but we know there could be people in our church who are really not regenerate who will ultimately leave because they just can't accept the truth. And John talks about that again. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they are from God. There are many false prophets that have gone out. This is how we recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit. So he's talking about knowing that. Even within the community that he's in, there can be false teaching and so forth. And so not everybody's speaking the truth, except Bill Combs, of course, you know. But uh, (laughs) that was a joke. So it's a little strange here, uh, but uh, I remember remember Dr. John Whitcomb. uh, He was one of my teachers in Grace Seminary. Kind of well known for his teaching on creation, evolution, stuff like that, but a lot of stuff. But, but uh, he he always pointed out this verse here to us about you know this is just something you have to live with that you're going to see this kind of thing in churches uh, where people because they're not really regenerate there there has to be so that we can determine who's 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 with the truth and who's not with the truth. That's just the way it has to be. Verse 20, so then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. With the word, so then, Paul returns to his argument of verse 18, after this sort of digression in verse 19, concerning the divisions around the Lord's Supper. Although the Corinthians are coming together as a church and eating a meal, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, it's not the Lord's Supper in that it's not a meal that honors the Lord. So it doesn't belong to the Lord, it doesn't honor the Lord. Paul is drawing a contrast between what should have been the Lord's Supper, one that is consecrated, one that's dedicated, one that honors the Lord, and their own private little suppers, as we'll see in verse 21. So even though it's intended to be the Lord's Supper that they are eating, it turns out because the way they are treating and making these distinctions between rich and poor, it's not really turning out to be one that honors the Lord is not the Lord's Supper in that sense. Verse 21. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. In verse 21, Paul seeks to tie the ideas of verse 18 and 20 together. He does so by explaining the nature of the divisions and why their meal ceases to be the Lord's Supper. Verse 20. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. 
So it seems that the rich are eating their private meals at the Lord's Supper, probably in the triclinium together, which would include, you know, special portions, private portions, more food, more elaborate kind of thing. The precise nature of these private meals is not certain. Most likely they were both quantitatively and qualitatively superior to those of the have-nots. So the language, some are hungry and have nothing, implies that the meal of these have-nots is basically sort of the bread and the wine associated with the meal, with the Lord's Supper, and nothing else, nothing else in the meal. Um, In the end, what this means is that one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Although drunkenness is certainly a problem, it's always a sin in the Bible, Paul is not simply concerned about drunkenness. What he's done here is to take... um, He's done is to take the words from both parts of the meal, eating and drinking, and express them in their extremes. So one extreme is to go hungry. Uh, You know, you don't have enough. If you don't have enough, you go hungry. The other extreme is to gorge yourself. And if you gorge yourself on this food and wine, you will eventually get drunk here. So he's talking about the extremes of how the poor are treated versus how the rich are treated here. And as the following verse will make clear, verse 22, um, Paul's concern is not simply with drunkenness of the one, but the hunger of the other. Verse 22, but don't you know, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. It's clear from the tone of this verse that Paul is very upset that the Corinthian church and their and their abuses at the Lord's Supper. Paul is so filled with indignation that he puts forth a series of rhetorical questions intended to reduce the rich to shame. Rhetorical questions are just questions you ask to provoke thought, but you don't expect to be answered. So he puts forth these series. The first question responds to verse 21 directly. It's full of irony or satire. For surely it cannot be, can it, that you don't have houses to eat and drink in, you know? If you want to have this big feast and gorge yourself, do that at home. Don't do it here at the assembly of the church and then humiliate others who have nothing. they don't have houses to eat in to eat their private meals then you know they shouldn't be doing that here in the assembly of God Um, but if they are eating these meals in the presence of others then there's a second question that's called for or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing and this question really gets at the behavior that Paul is upset about the real nature of their behavior. Um, And so with the third and fourth question, he kind of brings the argument to where it began in verse 17. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? To which, of course, the answer is certainly not in this matter. I say here, the first two questions together indicate that Paul is addressing the wealthy. They have houses to eat and drink in. 
I mean, some of these people in the, in the church are slaves. There are slaves in this church. They didn't have houses to eat and drink in. They're, they're on private houses. They're slaves. It stands in contrast to those who have nothing. In the next question. For those who thought of themselves as keeping the traditions, the actions noted here probably did not register as a particular consequence. They had always acted like this. And as I said, these distinctions between rich and poor were a normal part of society in the ancient world. In Corinth, this was accepted and, and normal. It was just the way things were. Uh, people didn't... Uh, religions, other religions didn't object to this. There was no, you know, other religions didn't say this is a problem. Uh, they, they observed these distinctions between rich and poor. Um, but for Paul, these distinctions at the Lord's Supper were destructive of the supper itself because it destroyed the very unity that the meal proclaimed. The meal proclaims that we are one body, that we are a church together. So in the strongest possible language here, he says that they are despising the church of God. Do you despise the church of God? So Paul says, this means the church counts for nothing in your eyes. Um, and they're showing contempt for the church, by Paul says, by humiliating those who have nothing. They're degrading, humiliating the have-nots. Well, Paul has stated the problem there, what the abuse is, very clearly. Now we come to the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. Contrary to what Paul had said about the Corinthians in verse 2, they are not keeping the tradition of the Lord's Supper. Since this is so, Paul feels compelled to remind them of its true significance by repeating the actual words of the institution. By their going ahead with their own private meal and thereby humiliating the have-nots, the wealthy have also apparently lost touch with the meaning of the supper itself. So the words of the institution here are going to be repeated by Paul, the words of our Lord Jesus. Um, to remind them of why they should be celebrating this meal in the first place. Um, they're supposed to be celebrating this meal to honor Christ in a special way, to remember Christ. And as he says, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, he'll tell us. Um, so their actions are not in keeping with this proclamation of the gospel. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 22, Paul made it clear that he had no praise for them in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is because they're failing to keep the traditional teaching on the Lord's Supper. To demonstrate this, Paul appeals to the tradition itself as he had received it from the Lord and passed it on to them. So Paul wants to, in their minds, reestablish the tradition about the Lord's Supper that they had received from him that came from the Lord Jesus himself. And so he says, I received it from the Lord. 
The Corinthian meals are not truly the Lord's Supper, as Paul says, because they don't reflect or proclaim the meaning of the meal as the Lord himself instituted it on the, that evening. Now, it says here, uh, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Now, that could mean that Paul got direct revelation from the Lord. Now, what he's going to tell us came directly from the Lord himself. And Paul does say, he seems to say, like in Galatians 1, that he did get some direct revelation. I don't think we doubt that Paul, at times, got direct revelation. And that may be the case here. I don't think so. It could be. The words here that are used, received and passed on, are very common words in Judaism in the Jewish literature of the time and even today for passing on tradition. You receive it, you pass it on. You receive it, you pass it on. That's what we do. We receive and we pass on you know, to others who come after us. So these were technical terms in Judaism for religious instruction. So to say I received it and I passed it on means I was instructed. So it may be that Paul means that he was instructed about the Lord's Supper and he's passing that on. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It could be direct revelation. It's hard to tell. But the words we know are used of the way that Jewish teachers talked about being instructed. I received, I passed on. Our present, uh, I say here, our present celebration of the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his own disciples. This was probably a Passover meal at which he reinterpreted the bread and wine in terms of his body and blood soon to be given over in death on the cross. The term body refers to the actual body which was about to be given over in death. The verb is here when Paul says, Jesus says, he broke it and said, this is my body. The word is simply means signifies, stands for, or represents. No one sitting with Christ around the table would have thought he was saying that the bread was somehow a literal extension of his flesh. This is a common meaning of is in the New Testament. The Greek word is. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. He's using a metaphor. He's saying, you know, I, 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 you're not saying I am literally light. When Jesus says, I am the gate, he doesn't mean I am literally a physical gate, but I, I'm like a gate. I represent a gate. I am the entrance, that kind of thing. So when Jesus says, this is my body, he means this represents my body. This represents my blood. It's what he is getting at here. So the bread symbolized and represented his coming bodily death, an atoning sacrifice for the sake of all that would bring forgiveness of sins, make it available. So every time the Corinthians ate the Lord's Supper, they should have recalled the death of Christ and acted in ways consistent with Christ's immeasurable self-giving and grace on their behalf. They were to do this, as Paul says, in remembrance of me. In memorial of me. In remembrance means as a memorial to me. 
So in our church, we we believe that the ordinances of the baptism and the Lord's Supper are that. They're ordinances. They're not sacraments. They don't convey grace in that sense. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial. We're remembering when we celebrate. We're remembering his death for us. Verse 25. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus identifies the cup with his blood in terms of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. Some of the Corinthians were abusing what was supposed to be the Lord's Supper by going ahead with their own private meals in such a way as to humiliate others in the congregation. Paul recalls the words of the institution precisely to emphasize that whenever, whenever they eat this meal, it is to be the Lord's remembrance. It's to be in the Lord's remembrance. In the next verse, he will go on to explain what that means for him. Verse 26. For whenever you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul now concludes with a verse that really explains what Paul has been getting at all along. The word for indicates that he is now giving his reason for repeating through tradition at this point in the argument. It's not because the Corinthians have forgotten the words, nor because they have abandoned the supper, rather it's because their version of the supper gives a false view of its original intent. Remember, Paul had asked, shall I praise you for how you're carrying on? No, he said. For the tradition is this, at which points he repeats the words of the institution. The reason for repeating these words is now being given. The bread and the cup signify the death. The bread and the cup at the meal signify the death of the Lord. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the word for here, he now explains. Whenever we do this, verse 25 Whenever we do this in remembrance of me, verse 25, we are reminded through the proclamation of the salvation that was accomplished. We're reminded through the proclamation of the salvation that was accomplished for us by our Savior. Now I say here the verb proclaim, Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death always means to preach the gospel of Christ in the New Testament. It does not mean that the meal in itself is the proclamation, but that during the meal there is a verbal proclamation of Christ's death. You notice how we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. We have the Lord's Supper, and we have a service of the Lord's Supper, and we really have a message interwoven with that. With the, with the actual Lord's Supper as we take it. So we read verses, we explain the gospel, we talk about what this means. So we're proclaiming through this remembrance the gospel. In his death, Jesus gave himself freely for the sake of others. With his body and blood represented by the cup, he ratified the new covenant between God and his people. So the Corinthians' version of the Lord's Supper is less satisfactory at this particular point. By their abuse of one another, they're negating the very point of the death of Christ to create a new people 
a new people in his name, in which the old distinctions, there's neither slave. Remember Paul says in Galatians, there's not, there's not slave and free. You don't have those kinds of distinctions. You don't have those class distinctions in the church. These old distinctions based on human depravity are now gone and should no longer be in effect. Well, that brings us to the next section, the manner in which the Lord's Supper should be taken, 1127 through 34. In this section, Paul now applies the point of verses 23 through 26 to the Corinthian version of the celebration. Their supper in the Lord's honor is, in fact, dishonoring to him in two ways. First, the haves have been abusing the have-nots by going ahead with their own private meals. Second, they have therefore been abusing the Lord himself by not properly remembering him especially in terms of the salvation he has accomplished through his death, which was intended to make them one, not divided as their supper does. The purpose of the present section is to correct this first abuse by warning them of the dire consequences of persisting in this kind of behavior at the Lord's Supper. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The words so then indicate that Paul is now applying, drawing a conclusion here, applying what he has just said about the meaning of the words of the institution in verse 26 to their abuse of the Lord's table. So then, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Partaking of this meal in an unworthy manner is what the entire section is about. Unfortunately, the phrase, in an unworthy manner, was translated with the adverb unworthily in the King James Version. The King James says, Wherefore, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. This tends to give the impression that the problem is with the character of the person doing the eating rather than the manner in which it is being done. I should say, that's not what unworthily really means. (laughs) Unfortunately, unworthily kind of gives that impression that the problem here is the character of the person doing this. As I say here, Paul's real concern is related directly to verses 20 through 22, where some are abusing others at the Lord's table. Now, that certainly involves character. but By going ahead with their own private meals, such conduct is unworthy of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus' death is being proclaimed until he comes. So much so, Paul goes on to say, that such a person will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So in that that sense, they are the sinful character of the person eating is important because they are disregarding the true significance of the Lord's Supper. So there is sin involved here, and it's character in the sense that they are abusing the real meaning of the Lord's Supper by, by abusing the poor in this sense, not recognizing the real significance. Paul's point is that those who carry on at the Lord's table as the Corinthians are doing, have missed the point of the meal, which is to proclaim salvation through Christ's death, signified in the bread and cup, and proclaim in the bread saying and cup saying. To eat the Lord's Supper in a manner that violates this purpose 
To proclaim the Lord's death makes one guilty for the death of the Lord. Guilty in a judicial term is a judicial term, which means that the Corinthians are answerable to God, the final judge for this abuse. So the Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death, Jesus' death. And those whose behavior at the Lord's Supper does not conform to what that death entails effectively shift sides. They're on the wrong side. They're no longer being aligned with the Lord themselves. Um, they're aligned with people who don't understand the Lord's death. I mean, the Lord's they're missing the point of the Lord's death. Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood the Lord's death. They didn't understand the significance of what he was accomplishing for if they would have, otherwise they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we're making, these people are making themselves to God's judgment because they misunderstand they're abusing the real meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper. They're sinning against their Christian brothers and sisters. And by doing that, they have sinned against Christ himself. Verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Corinthians' behavior has misrepresented the gospel they claim to embrace. Before they participate in the meal, they should examine themselves in terms of their attitudes toward the body of believers, how they are treating others, and their understanding of what the elements represent since the meal itself is a place of proclaiming the gospel. You've probably gotten one of these emails from Pastor Ken before we have the Lord's Supper. Got one of those where it says, you know, if you have anything against someone in the church, you better make it right. <laughs> you better get that right, get it settled before the Lord's Supper. He's reflecting what we're talking about right here. So this verse, 28, along with verse 29 raise proper caution about casual participation in the Lord's Supper by those who are not obedient Christians. Verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The word for indicates that Paul now gives the reason why we should examine ourselves before taking part in the Lord's Supper, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of the Lord, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Drink judgment means they pass sentence on themselves if they fail to recognize the significance of the Lord's Supper. The term body refers to the body of Christ. Without discerning the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal, but the meal in which the Corinthians proclaimed that through the death of Christ they were one body, the body of Christ, and therefore... They are not just any group of diverse people who should keep their socioeconomic differences intact at the Lord's Supper. So they must discern, they must recognize the one body of Christ. They are one body. To fail to discern the one body means they are abusing the have-nots. That means they're going to incur God's judgment. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. This judgment that Paul announced in verse 29 has already begun in the Corinthian church among those who have abused the Lord's Supper. This is why many among them are weak and sick, and a number of them have fallen asleep. So God has chastened these people for their disobedience. He's brought illness and even death, he says to chasten the disobedience of these Corinthians who are abusing the Lord's Supper. 
verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined in that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Picking up the theme of self-examination from verse 30, 28, I'm sorry. Paul says that if the Corinthians had been examining themselves, they would not have been experiencing the judgments of verse 30. Their examination of themselves is to take the form of discerning the body. If they had been doing that, they would have not be coming under judgment. However, they are in fact presently being judged by the Lord in the way mentioned in verse 30. So this judgment, as we understand, is this divine discipline in which a loving God is correcting his children. And the purpose of such discipline, according to verse 32, is so we won't be finally condemned in the world. God chastens us as one means of of, of God bringing about our perseverance, our continuance in faith, is he chastens us. When we sin, he just doesn't let it just go by the wayside. He chastens us. He causes us to come back to repentance so that we will continue in faith and good works. Verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The words so then introduce a final conclusion in verses 33 and 34 from Paul's previous discussion. First he says, when the Corinthians come together to eat the Lord's Supper, they should all eat together. Paul urges the wealthy to demonstrate normal Christian hospitality. Remember Romans 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. This second piece of practical advice is addressed primarily to the well-to-do in whose homes the church is meeting. To them, not to the have-nots who are left hungry at the private suppers of the rich, Paul says anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. In this context, anyone is hungry almost clearly means if anyone really wants to gorge themselves and have this big meal like you are doing, then uh, do it at home. If you want to satisfy your desire for all these kinds of wealthy meals that you're accustomed to eating, do that at home, but not in the context of a gathered assembly where you're celebrating the Lord's Supper where the have-nots will be humiliated because they're off here in the corner (laughs) and you're in your private dining room having your big feast and they're humiliated over here in the corner. So though we don't suffer this exact same problem, uh, we... You know, we don't we don't have a meal with the Lord's Supper and so forth. When we do have meals here, we're all eating the same stuff, whether we like it or not. We're all eating, we're all eating the same stuff, and uh, but we we have to be careful about the class distinction thing, the socioeconomic distinction. That's a real problem. We tend to be more comfortable with people who are like us, who have our same, you know, similar to us, and, and, and so forth. And, we, we need to try to make, as Pastor Ken keeps beating on us about, <laughs> about this over the years. If you've been here long enough, you know, he preaches about this a lot. So it's a worthwhile reminder to us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together today. And we pray you'll use these words of the Apostle Paul to encourage us and to 
instruct us and teach us and help us to have the right spirit towards our fellow brothers and sisters and act in a way that will honor Christ and be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name.